Right. Good morning, Community Park. We are transitioning to um, an Advent series for the next few weeks or so. So we're taking a break from Revelation to focus on passages of Advent where we welcome the Lord Jesus Christ um, into our midst. And so this morning I have the privilege to preach from this great passage, this song of Zechariah from Luke chapter 1. Now, to start, I don't know if you were here last year, and if you remember, uh, last year around this time, I was struck with an ailment um, where one of my eye, my left eye, uh, one of my left eye, my eyelid, sorry, started closing and refused to open. And it was frustrating because I couldn't see. I was only looking with one eye, and, and oftentimes I would have to lie down because it was causing a lot of imbalance and couldn't really see properly. So it was really frustrating. And when I went to see the doctor about it, um, they couldn't figure out what was going on. And the only thing that they said was to rest, to um, lie down, to, to take it easy, and hopefully your eye will open again. So that's, that's the uh, advice from there. And great. So I... Basically, for the next two months or so, I was literally just doing that, you know, trying to figure out what was going on, why is my eye not opening, and it's, it's terrible, and I feel like at times, should I wear an eye patch as well, maybe that would help, you know, but that's crazy to wait for two months and not knowing what's going to happen if, if my eye's going to open up again, and eventually it did after two months, so that was great, but here's the thing, you know, as, as frustrating it was for me to have to wait for two months for something to happen. And I think it's even crazier to think about Zechariah, who has to wait 10 months or so in order to be able to talk. Why? Well, if you know the story of Zechariah, here's what happens. You know, Zechariah is a priest of God, right? He is called to the temple one day. It was his duty to go to the temple one day to offer up sacrifices. And so poor old Zechariah, as he went to the temple on that day, he went in to offer sacrifices, and then the angel Gabriel appeared to him and said to him, Zechariah, do not be afraid. Your prayers are answered. And behold, you and Elizabeth, you and Elizabeth will have a child, and you will name him John. And John will turn the hearts of the people and make ready for the Lord. And how did Zechariah respond? Well, he responded with a doubt. He said, how will I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. That response displeased Gabriel. And because of that, Zechariah was made silent and was unable to speak until the birth of John. And so roughly around eight to nine, ten months, nine to ten months or so, that Zechariah wasn't able to speak. There was a lot of time for him to ponder <laughs> about what just happened. There was a lot of time for him to reflect about the words of the prophecy of Gabriel. And so when John was born, and after John was circumcised on the eighth day, finally Zechariah was able to speak again. And what was the first thing that came out of his mouth after he was able to speak? Was he praising God that I could see again? 
No. He immediately went into this song of praise. He blessed the Lord. He sung blessings of the Lord in this, in this song. Not because that he was healed, but because of who the Lord is. So immediately, Zechariah went into this song of praise. He sung um, praises and thanksgiving to our God you know, for, for a couple of things. So as you look at his song, it's how, how it's being divided. And the first part of this song includes Zechariah's praise for God, for his salvation to his people. And then the second part, Zechariah then praises God for being the covenant, uh, covenant keeper, for being the, the promise keeper and offering salvation through his son. So as you look at these two parts, I want you to, to focus intentionally, to focus more as, as he sings this song, as he sings this song to God. I believe so much of this song resonates not only with the time of the people, during the people, during the time of Zechariah, but also to us as a whole. There are lessons here that we can learn from this song. And so first, let's look at at this first part of this song where Zechariah praises God for his salvation to his people. You know, this song in Latin is called the Benedictus because it is translated as the blessing. So it's Zechariah's blessing of God. It's, this song is, is almost a second part to Mary's song of the Magnificat. So they are both combined, but they both um, focus on, on different things, but yet they all are tied together to the Lord. They are all tied together to explain the coming of the Lord, explain the, the significance of why Jesus comes. And so this, in this song, Zechariah begins his song of blessing by praising God as the covenant keeper that we see in the Old Testament. You know, so much of what we read in the Old Testament has different elements of, of covenant that God made with his people. Now, if you want to know anything about, about covenants, you need to go back to the time of Abraham, the time of Moses, the time of David, because these, there are significant events in these passages that reveals God's goodness to his people by making a covenant with them. And so as you look at in the beginning in, in um, verse 68, when Zechariah opens up his song, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So this is how he starts the song. Blessed be the God of Israel for his visited and redeemed his people. And here's the thing, this language of visitation and, redeem, and redemption brings us back to the time of Exodus. Now remember the people of Israel when they were under the bondage of Egypt. God's people lived in captivity and suffered under the harsh treatment of the Egyptians. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 to 25 said, during those, day, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry of rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This language of visitation 
evokes God's intervention for his people. God knew, God heard, and God saw the suffering. And because of that, God intervenes by raising up Moses and Aaron to, let his people, to, to lead his people. And here's the thing, when, when Moses and Aaron went to the elders back in Egypt to convince them that we are God's people chosen to lead you out of Egypt, what did the people, what did the elders say? You know, in chapter 4, verse 31, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen the affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So here you see the language of visitation here that Zechariah spoke about. God saw the afflictions and suffering of his people, and God intervened. God visited them, and God raised up saviors, messiahs during that time. God raised up prophets to lead his people. And then Zechariah continues his song of praise, drawing the story of David. Zechariah said, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from, from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hates us. So in 2 Samuel 7, God made a promise with David. What was that promise about? It was a covenant that he made that David's kingdom will be an enduring kingdom, a kingdom that will last forever, a kingdom that will be ruled by his descendants. Kings will come from his line. And sure enough, after David came Solomon, who ruled the kingdom well in the beginning. We all know the story. Israel prospered, and the people lived well in the kingdom. But that did not last long, as Solomon sinned and led to the split of kingdoms. There was civil war that happened between Israel and Judah for a long time. And not only that, they were constantly attacked by foreign rulers, foreign invaders who sought to destroy them. So eventually the kingdom of Israel and Judah fell, and both were occupied, and the people were exiled from their homes. So the kingdom never recovered. But yet, despite of this predicament, the promise of David, the promise to David, still stand true. While the kingdom is in shambles, and the people were scattered, yet the promise still holds true, because one day a savior king will come, to bring salvation to God's people once more. There was a promise here that God had made that someone will come from David's line. It's not Solomon. It's not the kings after Solomon either. It's someone more important. Some, a savior who will come once and for all to save his people, to bring salvation. And this king will be God's horn of salvation for his people. And so typically when, when you think about horn, you think about animal horns, right? And you think about a horn of, say, an antelope or an ox. And for an antelope or an ox, the horn itself is its weapon and protection against other predators. And so the horn then is a symbol of power, of strength, of beauty, and also dignity. If you take it away, the horn of, 
of the, from the animal. You take away its power. You take away its beauty. You take away its strength. And similarly in the Bible, the horn also symbolizes power and strength. And here, tying the horn to salvation, we see then that God's horn of salvation that he promised is the Messiah that he will send, one spoken by the prophets of old, one highly anticipated by the people of God, even before the time of Zechariah. So the horn of salvation here is tied to Christ because in Christ, in Christ the Savior, comes the power of salvation for his people. It's not an army. It's not a political king. It's not some warrior out there, but it is Christ who comes as the horn of salvation. In him symbolizes the power of salvation that will come for his people. And that is the promise from this song here. And as God promised for Messiah, Zechariah also reminded us further from his song that God's promises actually takes us further back to the time of Abraham. You know, why would God do all of these things for us? We have to go back to Abraham. You know, when God called Abraham out of his country, he made a promise to him. He told him that he will make Abraham into a great nation. And from him will come people from all nations, and they will be blessed through him. God took his promise to a greater affirmation later in, in Genesis 17. You know, later on after Abraham displayed faith and obedience for willing to sacrifice Isaac, God said to him, By myself I have sworn that I will bless you and multiply your offspring, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. What does that mean, you know? For the first time in history, God actually told Abraham, I will swear by you that this promise will come true. God not only made a promise to Abraham, but he swore that this will come true, that his promise will be binding forever, that nothing is going to stop him from accomplishing this. You know, as God made promises to Moses, to David, but we have to trace it back to Abraham, as Zechariah tells us here. This is where it all started. You know, God started raising Abraham and, and called him out of his country. Why? What was the reason there? Was Abraham better than anyone? No. Because it tells us here in this passage was because of his shown mercy. It was God's mercy after all that he called Abraham and swore by him, and gave him this glorious promise that, that this promise is kind of like um, a, a sunrise, you know, where it's slowly unfolding. Now, I don't know if you've seen sunrise before from the horizon in the beginning when everything was pitch black, but then when, when you start seeing the break of dawn, you see this glorious light coming from afar, and it's gl- glowing and shining brighter and brighter. And so it is God, like God's promise, starting from Abraham, starting from the beginning, where God made this promise and is slowly unfolding. We see it from Abraham, we see it from Moses, we see it from David, we see it from the prophets, 
and ultimately we see the fulfillment of it in Christ. And so for the people, they are looking at these promises from a very small vantage point, from a small glimpses of it. And they're seeing more and more of it. And in this song of Zechariah, it's encapsulating all of it for us to see. We live in this time where Jesus has come. So we have seen all of it. But yet for the people, imagine, even during the time of Zechariah, they have not seen anything yet. Jesus was not born yet. Jesus was still in the womb of Mary at that time. So think about the significance of for these people as they look, as they anticipate for this coming. You know, from the beginning of this song, there's an affirmation of God's faithfulness to the covenant he made. You know, God is the savior of Israel. And this message has been passed on from generation to generation. He's their God and they are his people. And anyone who dares to hurt or attack God's people, let it be known that God is on their side and will fight for them. Why? Because of his mercy, because of his grace to his people. Because of his tender mercy, he made a covenant with his people and he swore by it. He swore by it. He guarantees it. As God is on their side to fight for them and delivers them from their enemies, God's people then can rest in the knowledge that he is with them. And so we see here they can then live without fear and live in holiness and in righteousness, as verse 74 tells us, that, after, that we might be delivered from the hand of our enemies and we might serve him without fear and in holiness and in righteousness before him all of our days. This was God's promise for them that because of what I do for you, I'm calling you out then to live, to serve me without fear, to live in holiness and in righteousness. And this is what God expects of his people. But you and I know as we read from the Bible, as we read from the Old Testament, that is not always the case. The people have not always lived to be faithful and obedient to God. Even though God rescued them, God delivered them, God brought them out of slavery into Egypt and gave them the Ten Commandments after that and and told them, this is how you are to live. But the people grumble, the people fail, the people rebel. God raised up foreign uh, kings to rule over them. They were in war fighting against all these foreign invaders, foreign kings. And then God saved them and, and then gave them a king to Saul, to David, to Solomon. And you would think that everything would go well, but then again, God's people rebel again and sin. And the kingdoms were split. And the people were exiled for a long, long time. And worse still, God's presence appeared to have moved on from them for there were a period of 400 years where there was no prophet to lead God's people. They were like sheep wandering in the desert without a shepherd. There was no kings, no rulers, no prophets to speak for the people for 400 years. There was silence. And so God calls his people to live 
in righteousness, in holiness, but yet they fail. They fail to do so and so suffer judgment. But then comes the beauty of this second part of this song, as we see, because Zechariah praises God, not only that God was the God of salvation for the people of the past, but he praises God because God's promise is coming true. Why? Through his son, Jesus Christ. You know, Zechariah praised God for his fulfillment of his promises to Moses, to Abraham, to David. But now he turns to his newborn son, John, right? Now, once upon a time, Zechariah had doubted God when he was told that he would have a son. But after nine to ten months of pondering the will of God, and he finally understood. Now with the new birth, Zechariah fully believed and was full of praise because he now embraced the will of God for his son. He was to be a father of a forerunner to the Messiah. Now what a privilege it is for him that God would choose his son to hold that highly esteemed position in the redemptive story of God. But John, as you know, would come before the birth of Christ. He would be a forerunner. What does that mean? He will come to prepare the way for the true Savior, Jesus Christ. He will take up the mantle of the prophets. Think about it. For 400 years, there was no prophet. And finally, God answered by raising up a prophet in John. John is a prophet that would lead his people to God once more. So God's promise is unfolding again. Go before the Lord to prepare his way is the command that God gives to John. And how does he prepare the way for the Savior? He would come to preach the gospel of repentance, telling them how they will be saved through the forgiveness of sin. This is the only way. He did not come to tell them to prepare the way that, that God is going to raise up this glorious king who will fight all your invaders, all your, that will lead you from all your physical problems. No, he's telling us that God is coming through Jesus Christ and he's going to do something that no one in the history has ever done. He's going to bring salvation, not from foreign invaders, but salvation from your sin. When John will preach the gospel of repentance, he will declare the greatness of Jesus as one who will baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. And so John comes as this prophet to lead his people back to God. But it's interesting to see in this song too that Zechariah does not only dwell in praising his son, Zechariah does not really spend a lot of time praising his son. In fact, you see from then on, he goes on to praise God for his own son, Jesus. You know, while, while Zechariah was grateful for God to provide this long-awaited son in John, he also knows that John is just a prophet. He's just a, a forerunner. Because one after John, one who comes after John will be far greater. You know, as great as John is, Jesus is far greater. And so praising his own son, Zechariah, praising his own son only leads him to praise 
God's true son, Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. But as Zechariah highlights this ministry of John, as he tells us that John will come to preach the gospel of repentance, he also wants us to know again the source of God's salvation to his people, through Jesus, is rooted in God's compassion again. He takes us back to this idea of mercy, of compassion, just as he has done in, in the beginning of this song. Verse 78 to 79 says, Because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Because of God's mercy, the sun will rise again to bring darkness, to bring light into darkness. Now we you know, are living in the darkest season of the year right now. And for some people, you leave for work in darkness and then you return home in darkness, right? You do this over a period of time and it can feel a little depressing. It can feel a little different, right? Because it's, it's always dark. You know, it's been known that, that sometimes our, our health, our mental health could be affected too if we don't have enough light in our lives, if we don't have enough sunlight in our lives. And so but can you imagine that this imagery of light, right, it's not just physical for the people of, of God. You know, it's, it's spiritual. They are living in spiritual darkness for a long, long time. They are living in darkness, not only that they are living in darkness, they are overwhelmed by darkness. They are overwhelmed by darkness, overtaken by darkness. They were living in despair of their sins as they were in exile, as their homes were destroyed, you know, as they were living without proper guidance, without a prophet of God. They were not hearing God's voice. They were wandering all over. But because of God's tender mercy, as we saw in his covenant with Abraham, God will not leave his people in darkness. And so here we see Zechariah again using the language of visitation as was in Exodus. Like the time of Exodus, God is not oblivious to the plight of his people. He knew their suffering. He sees it. He hears it. And because of his great mercy and love, he will visit them again. And this time he will visit them through his son, Jesus, the light of the world. So Zechariah's song finds direct correlation to many of the prophets who have spoke before him. You know, Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Malachi, who was one of the last prophets in his passage, in his, uh, chap in his book said in Malachi 4, 2, the son of righteousness S-U-N, the son of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So Jesus, this long-awaited Messiah, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. And like the sun appearing from the horizon, 
Jesus is coming to bring light to all and guide us to the path of peace. He's not merely the political hero that some of the people wanted. He's not merely this great, awesome, powerful king who leads a strong army that the people wanted. Perhaps he's not even the kind of God that, that, we, that Arthur just prayed, that, that we engineer in our minds sometimes, wanting a God like a genie who is going to take away all our problems. No, he's not that God. He's a God who has come and is coming to bring real lasting redemption from our spiritual enemies, sin and death, so that we ultimately can experience a peace. A peace, that, I know this word peace, we use it a lot. But here's the thing, when, when we talk about peace here in the Bible, this is a peace that's not just an absence of conflict, but this is shalom, a sense a peace that is a sense of wholeness here. A wholeness where we see that, that, you know, the effects of sin, how sin in the beginning, when Adam and Eve fail and sin against God, we see how sin has wreaked havoc to the lives of people. But here's one thing that sin does for us. You know, it, it causes us to do many things, right? It causes us to rebel against God. But here is what sin ultimately does. It brings restlessness in us it brings dissatisfaction in us so that we're constantly running and running and running searching for something to fill our lives we want the next best thing we want someone else you know we want something to fill our lives constantly we're always running and we're always searching because sin creates this restlessness in us we're constantly dissatisfied with what we have you know how many of us bought something new and then a month later, you know, we're, we're tired of it. We're constantly dissatisfied with what we have, what God has provided for us. And that's what sin does in our lives. It brings restlessness to us. We're never happy. We're never fully satisfied. We're always searching, always wandering, always looking. But Jesus comes to fix all of that. Why? Because he comes to us, fix all that by dealing with sin, first and foremost. He did not come to deal with your circumstances of, of whatever predicament, whatever sufferings that you may, may endure. He comes, first of all, to deal with sin. Because sin is the thing that causes all sufferings, all dissatisfaction in our lives. He comes by dealing with sin so that ultimately we can experience true contentment and true joy from our peace with him, so that we can all experience shalom, this peace that surpasses all understanding, this peace that is complete. No more wandering, no more, no more sadness, no more tears, no more dissatisfaction. It's like this burden that is completely lifted from your shoulder, and this burden will not return. No, it's lifted once and for all. This is the peace that God is coming to bring. And so as we consider these wonderful truths of this glorious song of praise from Zechariah, how then are we to respond? You know, as God's mighty horn of salvation, Jesus is able to save anyone who would draw near to him. 
Here's one thing to remember. It means that if Jesus is able to save anyone who would draw near, it means that no matter how bad your sin, no matter how heinous a sin may be, Christ's power to save is far greater. Now, sometimes you may hear from people, I don't know if, if I can turn to God because I've done all these terrible things. You know, I've done such terrible things. I'm not a good person. Why would God want to save me? Well, it's because of his tender mercy that he saves us. You know, um, a couple of months ago, I was teaching um, a class, uh, one of the Club 412 class. We're talking about redemption. And that, that was exactly one of the questions that one of the kids brought up. By the way, they are really sharp kids, okay? If you want to learn about um, salvation, you want to learn about how to teach kids, like, you know, go, go and talk to them. They are amazing. So one of them asked the question, like, you know, when we talk about redemption, we, are, we, all, we know that we all have sinned. We all have fallen short of God. We have done terrible things. And even if we have not done terrible things, we still sin before God. And so we don't deserve to be saved. And the question was like, you know, why would God want to save us in the first place? Because if we don't deserve it. You know, we talk about this whole exchange where Jesus, who is perfect, who is righteous, he would come to this world for us who are sinners, who deserves to die, but yet he would give us his righteousness so that we can live, and he would take our sins so that he would die. How is this fair? They were asking. I'm like, you asked a great question. I don't have an answer for that. But other than to tell you that it is because of God's mercy and love for us. And so as you think about your own sin, right, perhaps you're thinking this situation where I've done terrible things in my life. I don't know if God will ever forgive me. Well, the answer is God will absolutely forgive you if you turn to him. Because your sins are not greater than the mercy of God. Your sins are not greater, not more powerful than the mercy of God. You think about the stories of the Bible and the people that God had raised. Every single person is flawed. Every single person has sinned. Every single person has done terrible things. You know, they have murdered. They have lied. They have cheated. They have, they have been an adulterer. They have worshipped false gods. And none of these sins will prevent God from saving them. And here's the thing, too. You know, I love this, this story of, of John Newton, who penned the most famous hymn of all, Amazing Grace. Now, if you read his story, it is remarkable. He would often call himself the chief of sinners, similar to the words of Paul, because in his early age, he was involved in the business of slave trading. Right? He was selling slaves all over. He was capturing them and selling slaves all over. And one day as he was sailing, a violent storm struck his ship and almost took his life. It was then that he saw the hand of God in preserving his life and gave himself to God. He would later become a minister of the word and went on to write amazing collection of hymns, notably Amazing Grace. But here's the thing. I know we sung this song a lot, but I want you to remember this first stanza again, which is a clear depiction of the greatness of God in saving sinners. In Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound who saved a wretch like me. You know, I was once lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. So friends, whatever you may think of yourself and of your past, 
Do not think that you are too far from God's mercy. Now, He may be calling you right now to turn to Him, to seek His offer of salvation. Do not think that you are too far from His mercy. It's because of His tender mercy that He came to us in the first place. It's not because of how good we are. It's not because of how amazing our accomplishments are. It's not because of how powerful we are. It's because of His great mercy that He came for you, for me, for all those who will turn to Him. And so nothing is more wonderful for a sinner than to receive mercy from God. Nothing is more wonderful for a sinner than to receive mercy from God. This is what I want you to hear and understand. This is how you can respond to God today. If you're finding yourselves in a situation where you're doubting, you are feeling disburdened, turn to the Lord. Turn to Him for salvation, for His mercy is extended to you and to me. And here's another thing to consider too. As, as Jesus saves us and liberates us, and this is where those of us who are followers of Christ must learn to understand, our lives are no longer the same as before. Now, Jesus' death on the cross not only liberates us from sin, it also calls us to a righteous living, which is what Zechariah sung. Now, Zechariah touched on some examples of serving him without fear and living in holiness and righteousness. These are examples of righteous living that God, because of his mercy that he has saved you, he now calls you to live, to serve him without fear, to live in holiness, to live in righteousness. And much like John, God has called us, has called us as his followers, as, as his people, to be his servants, to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. The light of the world has come into this world and has shined his light on you and I. And in return, he calls us to take this light to do what? To take this, world, to take this light to the world to shine on darkness. So we are his servants, are called to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And before Jesus ascended to heaven, one of the clearest a mission that he has given to us is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that God has commanded. This is his will for us as his followers. How, then, are we to heed his commandments and to do this, to, to be obedient to his commandments? You know, as we are in this Advent season, I want to challenge and encourage us to make some changes in our lives if we're not living out his will to draw people to Christ. You know, if you are living in this period of time where you are struggling with motivation, motivation to, to reach out to those who are lost, to share the gospel, one of the most important things you can do right now is to turn to God and seek for his help. Nobody can motivate you unless it comes from God. God has to give you the heart and the desire, and so turn to Him. Seek Him to enliven your hearts towards the lost. Seek Him to enliven your hearts towards those in need of the gospel. It is true that we are living in a time where it's different from John and from Zechariah. They were looking towards the coming of Jesus to bring salvation. And for us, we live in a period where Jesus has come. 
But guess what? Jesus is coming again. And do you understand the implication of what that means when Jesus comes again? Jesus comes to bring salvation for the first time, but he's coming home. He's coming back to bring judgment this time around. And so I pray and I ask that, that perhaps you will turn to the Lord to seek motivation from him, to seek him to enliven your hearts, to see those out there who do not know the Lord, who, those who live in darkness, those who without a shepherd, to point them to God. I pray that God will cause you to see those, to understand. And then perhaps if you're not struggling with motiv- motivation, perhaps you're struggling with, with knowing how to do it. Well, here's where I would love for you to come to talk to me. Come to talk to Jim Cunningham here, who, who preached a great sermon to us recently on, on evangelism. Talk to your elders. Talk to people who are more mature than you. Seek help. You know, there are books as well that, that could help you, but I want you to take this opportunity to seek and find someone who perhaps is more mature than you. Talk to Claire to help you to, to understand what it means to be able to share the gospel with people, how to do it. You know, I think sometimes we, we have this passiveness in our hearts where we don't really know. Because we don't know something, we choose not to do it. But I pray that, that God will cause us, us to, to understand, to see the importance of these things. And if you are struggling, the power of the community can help you to, to understand, to, to educate you, to teach you to do that. And perhaps if you're struggling with opportunities, you're thinking, I don't have time. You know, I don't know what to, where to start. Well, look around you. There are people in your neighborhood right now. There are people who are your friends, who are your co-workers, even your family members who may not know the Lord. You don't have to carve out a lot of time to think about these things because they are in your presence every day. They are living around you. They are working around you. They are around you at all times. There are opportunities out there for them as well. For you as well, sorry. There are opportunities out there that you can take hold of. And maybe you're thinking like, you know, it's hard, I don't have time for that. But here's the thing too. Next Saturday, there's also an opportunity. This is a shameless plug here, sorry. But next Saturday, you know, what we're doing here once a month is to go to Boundary Village to connect with the communities around there, to pray with them to offer groceries, to offer toys to the kids, but at the same time, what do we want to do here? The heart of it is to be able to extend the love of Christ, not only through our deeds, but also through our words. There's an opportunity to share the gospel with people, to talk to people about it. And last week, Penelope came up here to, to share about her ministry with international students. Maybe this is something that you're interested in, and I want to encourage you to talk to her. You know, I think there are so many opportunities here. Sometimes we want to sit there and be critical about what things are done and not done or how we, we do evangelism, how we share the gospel with people. This is not the right way. This should be the right way. We can sit and bicker about all these things. And I love this quote from D.L. Moody that, that Jim shared with me. You know, D.L. Moody said to, to his critiques, he said, it is clear that you don't like my way of doing evangelism. 
you raise some good points. And frankly, I know sometimes I don't like the way of doing evangelism, but I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. Take that. <laughs> so what, what Moody is telling us is that doing something is better than doing nothing. And so I want to encourage you to take this opportunity to do so. Again, if you struggle in some of these ways that I've pointed out, I would love for, to talk to you about it. I would love to encourage you. I know people in this church would love to talk to you too. All right? Let us find opportunities to draw ourselves to God and to draw people to Christ. And finally, as we consider living in holiness and righteousness, which is what the Lord calls us to do too, this is all more important in our culture today. Yes, Christ has shined in his light in this world, but darkness has not been fully eradicated. There's still brokenness in this world from war, from persecution. There are also temptations in our lives that will seek to draw us back to our old self. And even after we've been delivered from our darkness of sin, sometimes our whole body of death still clings on. And this is why sometimes we feel ourselves being dragged back into the old patterns of sin that we hate so much, right? We struggle with, with sin on a daily basis. We struggle with habitual sins on a daily basis. And so I want to encourage us to remain vigilant in our lives by anchoring ourselves to Christ daily, by seeking Him daily, by seeking His strength and His power. And at the same time, we also know that because we are imperfect beings, still capable of sin, what do we do then? We cling to the mercies of God daily. We cling to His grace daily as we turn to Him for forgiveness and assurance of faith. You know, if we turn to Him from all our unrighteousness, He is quick to forgive us. And so I want to encourage us as we look through this, this song of Zechariah, what it means for us, what it means for God being the horn of salvation for His people and for us what it means for him to save us and to call us to serve him, to live righteously and to live in holiness. What does that look like for us? I want to encourage us in this season of Advent to look at these things, to understand these things and to live this out. Let's pray. Only Father, I thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word. Lord, if there's anything that we can take from this, Lord, is to know that because of your tender mercy and your grace to us, you have sent your son Jesus to die for us. You did this because of your mercy and not because of how great we are. And so I pray that you'll call us to turn to you, call us to turn to, to take hold of this salvation that you've given to us. Embrace your, your gifts to us, Lord. Pray that you call us to turn to you and to seek you in response of your goodness to us so that we can learn to live in, right in righteousness and in holiness, live to serve you and to live in the peace that you have given to us. I thank you for that opportunity. I thank you for Christ. And I ask that, Lord, you will speak to our hearts, Lord, to change us because only your spirit can work in our hearts to change us, Lord. I pray that you would do so. 
I thank you and I ask all this in Jesus' name.